This is Africa Digest. A very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequency 15235 kHz on the 31-meter band to West Africa. I'm Jazarod. On the show with me, Anne Musa, with your news and your economic report, and Fikili Lenguati with your final sports update for this hour. Top stories on African Digest this hour. Kenyans angry at the president for signing an agreement with Uganda, which will allow Kampala to export sugar to Nairobi. Mining stakeholders in South Africa hold talks over job shedding in the sector, and in sports, South Africa's Minister of Sport launches the Indigenous Games. Now with the news, here's Anne Musa. A very good evening to you. The U.S. Embassy in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, says its warning of possible terror attacks in South Africa has been triggered by specific and credible information. The mission earlier warned Americans in South Africa that extremists might be targeting U.S. government facilities and business interests. Embassy spokesperson Cynthia Harvey would not disclose more information about who the threat came from or what the likely targets were. She says security warnings are not a reflection on bilateral relations with countries, but are part of a commitment to protect U.S. citizens traveling and living abroad. South Africa's state security ministry could not immediately comment. Police in Kenya have arrested a man in Nairobi with three explosive devices at a new upmarket mall in the city. The alert came shortly after authorities reopened the Westgate shopping center after a terror attack involving al-Shabaab jihadists two years ago, which killed more than 60 people. Sarah Kimane reports from the Kenyan capital. Police say the anti-terror police unit has detonated the devices even as the mall was evacuated. The man was trying to gain entry into the mall and had no identification on him during his arrest. Police further say that security officers became suspicious after he refused to undergo a security search. The devices were found wrapped in a plastic bag. The mall was due for a grand opening tomorrow. Security at Nairobi's shopping malls has been heightened since an attack on the Westgate Mall two years ago. 67 people were killed during that attack. A spokesperson for a Burundian opposition party has been shot dead in the capital Bujumbura. Patrice Kahanga of the Union for Peace and Development was killed late last night. In May, the leader of the same party was shot dead amid violent street protests against President Pien Kurunziza's bid for a third term in office. Tens of thousands of people have fled the country since the crisis began. Egyptian government forces have carried out separate operations in the country's Sinai Peninsula, killing more than two dozen militants. The army in a statement says 29 militants were killed when the forces launched offensives against militants in the Sinai town of Sheikh Zawid, the city of Al-Arish and the border town of Rafah. Egypt has been struggling to quell an insurgency in the peninsula since the military overthrow of Islamist President Mohamed Morsi in 2013. 
And finally, Sierra Leone has recorded four new cases of Ebola in a village on its northern border. Health officials say the country is likely to see more new infections and a further setback to efforts to end an 18-month West African epidemic. The new cases are people who came into direct contact with the woman who died of the disease last month. Head of Sierra Leone's National Ebola Response Center, Paolo Conte, says the woman's family had failed to notify authorities when she fell ill. Soldiers have been brought in to ensure that the villagers remain in their homes during a quarantine period. That's the news. Um, Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And a very good evening. Welcome. Thank you, Anne Musa. And, uh, yep, there you have it. And that's her for the night. Of course, don't forget she will be back for our economic report later on. And, of course, Fikili with your sports. In Kenya, ordinary people, including veteran activists, are staging demonstrations to protest against President Uhuru Kenyatta's unilateral decision to sign an agreement with Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni to pave the way for sugar imports from Uganda into Kenya. James Shimanula was at one of the venues of the demonstrations in Nairobi from where he filed this report. According to the agreement signed by Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and his Ugandan counterpart Yoweri Museveni, Uganda will import sugar into Kenya, ending a long-running dispute over the trading of the commodity across their common border. It may be appropriate to point out that four years ago, Kenya banned sugar imports from Uganda when it was discovered that Ugandan traders packaged cheap sugar from the common market for Eastern and Southern Africa Comesa for sale in other markets. A cross-section of ordinary Kenyans think that the same repackaging of sugar that was done by Uganda four years ago may be repeated and that it may enrich several business tycoons in Kenya. Now listen to this recording featuring me mingling with the Kenyans who staged the demonstrations in Nairobi to protest against the importation of sugar from Uganda. I want to say this, that enough is enough. We are no longer going to allow the government of Kenya to import sugar from Uganda to Kenya. We have Mumias, we have Moroni, we have Zoni, we have Kaporaz. The message that this young man is spreading here in Nairobi is that uh, he and hundreds of others are opposed to the importation of sugar here in Kenya and they are protesting against that importation. And I package it and say it's coming from Uganda. We have seen your name? My name is Michael Sidigu. What do you do? I am a sugarcane grower and I am the chief executive officer for the Kenya Sugarcane Growers Association in Kenya. Why are you refusing Kenya to import sugar from neighboring Uganda? Because Uganda in the first place has no enough sugar to bring to Kenya. Number two, even our own farms, we still have cane rotting in the farms that has not been taken to the mills. Our factories only need some little rehabilitation to give Kenyans enough sugar. The farmers in the western country, the western part of this country, need, that's their own economic activity. So if you bring sugar from outside, it means you are rendering people 
economically you are reducing them to zero. Why are you saying that you don't need uh, sugar from Uganda? We have enough sugar here in Kenya. We have Mia Sugar Company, we have Sony Sugar Company, we have uh, uh, Kapala Sugar Company. So why should they import sugar from Uganda when you have enough sugar here? My name, My name is Chekai Musa. What we are saying is that uh, importation of sugar from Uganda and outside Kenya is going to kill our farmers. What we are saying is that the government, instead of importing sugar, they should be improving on the farming for those that can have enough sugar in Kenya. We are no longer going to allow the government of Kenya to import sugar from Uganda to Kenya. Those were voices of Kenyans that took part in a demonstration to protest against importation of sugar from Uganda. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Now, if you've just tuned in, welcome to the show. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazz Arad, and we're broadcasting live from Johannesburg. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the opposition has described the country's political situation as a very bad one and called on President Joseph Kabila to make it clear he'll step down at the end of his last term. The statement comes as the DRC is preparing an election series to be held both this year and next year, although the opposition is still divided on a national dialogue to be held in order to discuss ways and means for peaceful elections. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The electoral process is underway since months in order to organize seven elections this year next year, including both presidential and parliamentary polls expected in November 2016. The opposition has called on President Joseph Kabila to put it clear he'll step down at the end of his last term in the office next year. He didn't say nothing as far as such a matter is concerned, although the presidential majority has emphasized that President Kabila would respect the Constitution. But many opponents are suspecting he's trying his best to stay on power beyond 2016. The Union for the Congolese Notion, UNC, has called on supporters to make sure they stop Kabila from keeping himself on power. Sele Yemba is in charge of the UNC communication here in Kinshasa. The political situation here in the DRC is very bad and President Joseph Kabila is not willing to step down. This is against our constitution that allows Congolese to stop any president who wants to remain on power. This has happened while a national dialogue might be held here anytime in order to allow Congolese discuss ways and means for this country to organize peaceful elections. Some opposition leaders have rejected such a dialogue. They suspect it might be used as a strategy for Kabila to continue ruling. Most of them have called on an international facilitator as a condition for them to attend. But this analyst from Africa Connection here in Kinshasa believes there is no need since Congolese are so mature and they have enough experience to discuss and solve their problems. Alan Waikani. In our history, we have called for different people to come and help us so that we can talk for some important issues. But today, Congolese are mature enough. We have experience of two elections, even though it was not a perfect election, but we are mature enough to take a lesson from the wrong things that we did together and the, bad, the good things that we achieved together. 
and in this level i don't think that we still need people 55 years after the independence and different experience from war from different dialogue that we had in this country we cannot remain kids forever i think today other countries of africa they have benefit to call for congolese for the experience that we have remember that we are the only country in which we have the experience of five presidents leading the country and this is a big experience that even african union or european union and uh, all other organizations even un may ask for that one day how did you do to reach that level each of you coming from his army accept to come in kinshasa and to be led by someone this is a very big experience that Congolese should not forget that we have also some lesson of experience to give to others, but we should not remain thinking all the time that for a small trouble between brother and sister, we always need people. Sometimes we even calling for people that have never experienced what we have experienced already. Because Congolese, we have lost more than 8 million of people in this country through the different trouble that we have been resolved with the help of some people, of course, with some country, but the most of the volunteers are coming from Congolese saying that we have to stop and this I think it's also the experience that we can rely on saying that we can resolve this is just a matter of election and we don't see how someone may come to teach people who had organized already two elections in their countries. The upcoming elections will be the third ones after those of both 2006 and 2011 from which Joseph Kabila was elected as head of state and according to this country's constitution, the current term is Kabila's last one in the office. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Well, you're with Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. And uh, if you haven't heard of it, this is our question of the day. The Arab nations of the Persian Gulf have some of the world's highest per capita incomes. Their leaders speak passionately about the plight of Syrians. And their state-funded news media cover the Syrian civil war without cease. Yet as millions of Syrian refugees languish elsewhere in the Middle East and many have risked their lives to reach Europe or died along the way, Gulf nations have agreed to resettle only a surprisingly small number of refugees as the migration crisis overwhelms Europe. Humanitarian groups are increasingly accusing the Arab world's richest nations of not doing enough to help out. Our question today is, why are some rich countries, rich Arab countries and Gulf Arab countries, reluctant to help Syrian refugees? Give us your thoughts. Email info at channelafrica, one word, dot org, dot za, or SMS plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Or you can get hold of us on Twitter uh, at Rise and Shine Africa or at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Would like to get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station is it via shortwave internet or satellite and what do you enjoy listening to you can sms us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine oh five or email us it's at info at channelafrica.org you can also tell us via facebook or tweet us on the handle at channel africa numerical one or write to us at the address P.O. Box 91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. 
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, there you heard it. Get tweeting, get mailing, or SMSing. Tabiso has told you. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazarod. Progressive-minded leaders from various sectors today gathered in the South African capital of Pretoria to discuss the legal, moral, and economic case for investing in the future generations. <coughs> the one-day global child forum was held under the patronage and active participation of the country's former first lady, Dr. Grasha Machel, and Princess Sophia of Sweden. Keynote speakers included the African Union Commission Chairperson Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, who said, They are still lacking regarding issues affecting children. Jane Matabula attended the event and filed the following report. The world's most ratified convention, the 25-year-old Convention of the Rights of the Child, the CRC, is not quite working the way it should. It is against this backdrop that the Global Child Forum convened in Southern Africa for informed dialogue and thought leadership on how to advance children's rights in support of the CRC. Reflecting on the plight of children is chairman of the forum, Alf Kalberg. Children and young people are suffering around the world in civilized developed states and in developing states. All over the world we see variations of suffering and violations. We're talking about 2.4 billion human beings, the people under 18 years of age. To understand that, let's take a view of the globe. It's looking beautiful. The colors, the sparkle, the shine. It looks like harmony. It looks like balance. But if you look a little bit closer, not only on this continent, but in many, many other places, you suddenly see war, conflict created by human beings. The children and the women are the ones suffering most. Therefore, we have enormous streams of refugees all over the world. Today, particularly in the northern area, in the Middle East, in Europe, but also in many, many other parts of the world. A terrible human disaster. We can read about it in the papers everywhere. The politicians in Sweden, like the politicians in Pretoria, they are saying, what shall we do to handle this problem with all these people, young people, children coming into our country? How can we deal with that? Calling for a broad partnership in efforts to better the situation of children, South Africa's former First Lady, Grasa Machel, challenged businesses to look at children as an investment. The private sector is a critical investor in this investment for the human capital of our children and youth so that they can unleash their full potential. I dare to suggest a more prominent and vibrant involvement of our academic and research institutions in producing evidence-based information to influence the decision-making of governments, of private sector, non-governmental organizations, and even of community-based organizations. We tend to think we know enough what the problems are. And I'm saying, I don't think we know enough. We need much more research. We need much more evidence. Even in one country, strategies can vary according to communities you have to serve where children are. Princess Sophia of Sweden said, although so much good is happening beyond the everyday reporting of the suffering of children, it remains clear that so much still needs to be done. Democracy is spreading, poverty diminishing, literacy increasing, 
And part of this is fueled by the digitalization and the globalization. The world has never been smaller. But there are menacing threats as well. And that's why we're all here today. There are still clear violations on the rights of the child. And it is important to engage all sectors of the society, including governments, businesses, the civil society, and don't forget the local NGOs and the children themselves. In her keynote address to delegates, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosa Zanadlamini Zuma, questioned the role of the mother in the discussion and actions to improve the situation of children, arguing that she is a missing vital partner. I've heard all the partners to this endeavor, but there is one big partner that is missing, the mother. Where is the mother in all this? I haven't heard anyone mention the mother, or maybe one. Because really, the best interest is with the mother. If the mother is sleeping under the bridge, the child will sleep under the bridge. If the mother has got shelter, the child will have shelter. If the mother is hungry, the child will be hungry. Because the mother will give the child first before she eats. So I think we must also ensure that the mother is part of all this discourse. That's the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Ngoza Zanadlamini Zuma. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. Now, socio-cultural practices are the major challenges for literacy in Africa, and this is according to the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, as the world marks World Literacy Day. Today is celebrated around the world annually on the 8th of September to highlight literacy as a human right and as a force for dignity and also a foundation for cohesive studies and sustainable development. UNESCO says over 700 million adults worldwide, two-thirds of them women, still lack basic literacy skills. More from Senior Education Specialist at UNESCO Regional Office in Abuja, Nigeria, Dr. Saido Sirejallo. We have improved, but if you compare with the other regions of the world, we haven't done very well yet. And according to the UNESCO Institute for Statistics, which is the UNESCO agency that's responsible for statistics, adult literacy rate for Sub-Saharan Africa total is 60%, male is 68%, female is 52%. Now you compare these with other regions of the such as Central and Eastern Europe, they have 99%, 99%, 98%. 98% is for female, 99% male, 99% total. So the same with the Arab states. The Arab states are in the 70s, female 70%, the total 78, and males 86. If you look at these figures, you realize that we have not done very well. We have improved, but there's a greater room for improvement. We need to do more. In terms of the challenges that UNESCO is faced with, or rather just generally the continent is faced with, with trying to improve the literacy levels, how can this be done? A lot can be done, basically. Currently, there are challenges of insufficient financing of literacy and non-formal education. There is currently insufficient financing or funding for literacy and non-formal education. There's also another challenge related to political commitment to making literacy and non-formal education a national priority and invest in it. That's major challenges that governments, for instance, may talk and say this is our priority, but 
the worlds have to be marked with resources, be they financial, be they human, physical, of all sorts, but the commitment needs to be matched by some resources. Now, this is not the case in many sub-Saharan African countries. As a result, we need to correct these. If at all we have to make any progress to bridging this gap, literacy gap, within the continent, as well as between the continent and the rest of the world. And what are the benefits of a literate nation? Oh, a literate nation is on the way to sustainable development. That is certain. And a literate nation is an empowered nation. If you empower individuals or communities, you are empowering a whole country. If you do that, they can do things for themselves. They can participate more effectively in the running of the country, in the commerce of the country, in livelihood systems, in everything. They can be more effective with being literate than being illiterate. This importance of literacy. And the other thing, literacy is a key driver. It is a key driver for sustainable development. And I think given the period we are moving into, the sustainable development goals, placing the million development goals, literacy is a key driver for that sustainability, that sustainable societies, that sustainable development. That is where we develop, we are able to develop ourselves, yet create room for future generations to be able to develop themselves. You see, so literacy is critical, is central in that process. And the numbers speak for themselves that females are actually lagging behind in terms of the literacy levels. What are the challenges of empowering women or assisting uh, females on the continent to actually get to the same level or even higher in terms of literacy? There are programs that can be very useful, but some of the challenges I think a lot of countries are facing with regards to raising female literacy rates may relate to sociocultural practices which basically ascribe certain types of behaviors or expectations on females. You don't need to be literate. All you need to do is to know how to cook, how to look after a house and how to look after your husband because you are going to get married in any case very shortly. By 13, 14, you are going to get married. Early marriage and all that, these are all things that get young girls out of school and uh, into the matrimonial life. Sometimes it works, they stay forever. Other times, quite a number of times, the marriage doesn't go and this lady is out now, half semi-literate. They seem to have even the level of literacy that she has acquired whilst in school. There are others who still believe that uh, in some parts of the continent, who still believe that women do not need to go to school or to be educated or to even read and write. So those sociocultural practices are a problem. Early marriage is a problem. They perceive wrongly, I must add, perceive the role of a woman, girl, in the society it needs to change as well. Some of them see them as there's no need for education at all. There's no need to go to school. There's no need to be able to read and write. Read and write for what? All you need to do is to know how to look after a house and your children and your husband. So goes their reasoning. Some of those may change. We have to change over time because there are different strategies now which are being used by literacy programs which try to reach these ladies who are unreachable because of social practices, but working with the community leaders and traditional elders to get them to, to understand that it is critical that these people, that segment of their community, have not only a right to be able to read and write, but it's important for that community also to have people who can read and write so that those are the people who will move that community forward. That will move that community out of poverty. That will move that community to sustainable development. 
So some programs, some advocacy, a lot of advocacy is taking place, and strategies such as using new technologies like television or radio, this is by radio, this is by television, would minimize the exposure of the girls or the ladies, adult women in this case, to other people outside like men, which is sometimes the problem, would minimize that. So contact time would be with them, face-to-face contact time would be maybe once a week or twice a week, and the rest of the time they are accessing their courses via the radio or the television. These are expensive, very expensive, and are ventures. For instance, currently in Nigeria here, where I am at the moment, we have used in the past radio to have a greater reach and to reach those people who cannot be reached. Uh, it's already now being used again. We're using mobile phones to try to deliver literacy classes to women and girls in a particular part of the northern parts of the country where the literacy challenge is, is tremendous. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. A very good evening. I'm Jazz Arad. Welcome to the show. If you've just tuned in, we're going live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans uh, Frontières, is calling on the World Health Organization to lead the way in tackling snake bites as a global health emergency and to encourage governments across the world to raise awareness in effective communities. The agency's call comes as the 9th European Congress on Tropical Medicine and International Health kicked off in Basel, Switzerland today. Now to discuss this, we're joined on the line by Mr. Bori Lachranji, Head of Communications at MSF in South Africa. Good evening to you, Mr. Lachranji. I'm Jazz Arad. Hi, good evening, Jazz, and uh, good evening to your listeners. Thanks for having me. Now, how big of a public health concern is the issue of snakebite? Who is mainly affected? Okay, so um, if we consider the following, that um, I think in South Africa, we sort of uh, Southern Africa, we're reasonably familiar with the idea that there are several venomous snakes in, in our region. We know that in um, Sub-Saharan Africa, at least there are 30,000 people um, every year that uh, that succumb to snake bites. 
And there are often people who live in very rural yeah. areas where they do not have access to uh, medical services mm. in a regular sense. Um, and on top of that, um, there's not an awful lot that's being done, um, we feel at least, about ensuring uh, enough supply of a anti-venom mm. that can be used for, uh, for up to 10 different types of uh, snake bite. Yeah. And this is uh, why it's important for us to... Um, really call on the, the World Health Organization, government and pharmaceutical companies to address the issue now uh, because the way that we see it is um, the, there's no way to, to accept the fact that um, such a polyvalent um, antivenom will not be available uh, in a regular sense after 2016. Now, uh, Bori, how effective and safe are the treatments and antivenom available today? So when we talk about antivenoms, we need to remember that um, these antivenoms are normally uh, developed to deal with a particular type of uh, toxin mm. that uh, venomous snakes have. So the one that we're talking about today, it's called uh, Fav Afrique, mm. and it's made by the pharmaceutical company Sanofi Pasteur. Mm. Now, this particular antivenom, uh, as I said, is, is useful to... Uh, provide treatment for people who've been bitten by 10 different types of snake. And these uh, venomous snakes are, or this anti-venom rather, is, um, is useful in Central, West, and East Africa. Mm. And uh, it's a good anti-venom to use when a person is unable to identify the specific snake. Yeah. We know that this is very true for, for at least two places where we work, uh, a place called Agok in South Sudan and another called Pua in Central African Republic. And in these two places, we treat roughly uh, 300 to 400 snake bites uh, cases a year, uh, which uh, is for us quite significant. And we've seen over the last five years um, an escalation or in the incidence of, um, of snake bites in these two projects in particular. Yeah. Well, now, what are some of the reasons why global health actors have shown so little interest in this issue. Do you have any idea? Well, this is exactly why <laughs> this is exactly why we're hosting a symposium on this yeah. on this very no, issue yeah. in, in Basel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea, really, that we're left with is, um, in the case of South Africa, uh, as a as a polyvalent uh, antivenom or a, an antivenom that can be used for more than one uh, type of uh, snake and its, uh, its venom. Mm. Uh, they've uh, said recently in interviews, uh, this is now Sanofi Pasteur, mm. that uh, it was not uh, a cost-effective or a profitable uh, endeavor for them to do any longer. Mm. So they've already uh, announced in 2013 that they would cease production of this, um, this particular uh, antivenom. And uh, last year produced the last batch of this. So um, we know that we have roughly 15,000 vials of it in our own stocks as, um, as stockings without borders. But we know that uh, at least um, just in the Central African Republic, we'll need, uh, based on, on figures from 2013, we'll need at least uh, 1,400 of those vials. Yeah. Because you need to consider that uh, in order to treat a person after being bitten by a snake, you need to administer at least two to four doses. So um, clearly the, the supply is, has run out. The pharmaceutical company no longer sees it as a profitable endeavor. Um, and there is, in fact, the good news is that there is, in fact, a different company that can produce this, uh, yeah. this type of antivenom, 
but it will take them quite some time to ramp up their uh, ability to produce this at scale. And that's what we're worried about, a uh, potential period of time of two years mm. that it will take wow. to produce enough stock uh, by this new company. Um, and in that uh, period of time, we're, we're left in the lurch, but uh, not so much, uh, we're not so much concerned about ourselves, but um, about the people who really risk uh, being bitten by snakes uh, across the, uh, the sub- sub-Saharan African continent. Now, are there any problems that have been associated with the use of snake antivenom in the healthcare settings? And how can such problems be dealt with? Well, in this instance, you know, for us, what's the, the most pressing one is, yeah. is, is a lack of availability. Yeah. Um, and I think this is really what we're, what we're trying to draw attention to. But beyond that, uh, there's not an awful lot of research and development that goes into developing uh, effective and, uh, and safe uh, antivenins like this. Um, I think we, we can all agree that uh, if we're sitting here in Southern Africa or Central Africa, West Africa, we're very well aware of the, the dangers that snakes uh, pose to uh, human beings. Um, just to think of uh, potentially herders, uh, children, also people who are displaced during times of uh, conflict yeah. and are forced to flee into the bush. So these are the realities that we face. However, these are not the realities that inform the decisions that pharmaceutical companies make when they decide uh, to produce a, a certain product. So um, these are sort of knock-on effects, if you will, that uh, hamper our ability to improve uh, the treatment and the quality of life that people may have. I think it's worth remembering that even if you do survive a snake bite, um, there's, a, there's a good chance that you may lose a limb. And of course, if we're talking about um, Africa, uh, we need people who can live productive lives to uh, to provide for their families. And if you've uh, suffered an amputation of a limb, yeah. that decreases not only your quality of life, but also your ability to, to, to be productive. Um, so these knock-on effects are, are certainly something that um, aren't thought of immediately, but it's definitely something we see in our projects uh, in South Sudan and, and the Central African Republic. Now, Bori, you know, I do know, and I'm, uh, correct me if I, if, I, if, I, if I come across incorrectly, the mamba, okay, be it green or black, they affect the neuro, the nervous system. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Now, is there an antiserum for them and their bite? They say it takes, I don't know how many minutes. You would be much more informed on that, how it, how it can affect you and your system starts shutting down and tra-la-la-la-la. If you get bitten by a mamba and a black, it's even worse than a green, or I'm not too sure. But, you know, is that the case? Firstly, that's a neurotoxin. And do we have a serum for it? Um, there are. I think the good news is, uh, you know, as I'm, I'm not a medical person myself. Okay. I'm not a qualified uh, mm-hmm. medical doctor or nurse. However, I think the, the isn't, uh, there's good news because these venoms, sorry, these antivenoms exist. Mm. And um, if we think about uh, South Africa, it's got a long history of producing mm. uh, serums or, or anti-venom. Yeah. And in fact, the South African uh, um, uh, vaccine producers, mm. uh, which is a local organization affiliated with uh, the National uh, Health Laboratory Services, yeah. uh, located in, in Johannesburg, mm. produce a, a polyvalent uh, or a multi, multi-snake uh, okay. anti-venom locally, um, which is used uh, extensively in South Africa, uh, which includes um, effectiveness against the bite of the black mamba, the Cape cobra, the oh forest goodness. cobra, the ring oh pulse, the brown adder, the puff adder, and all these. Oh. 
uh, including two other members as well. Mm-hmm. However, this um, this particular polyvalent serum will not be useful for us uh, um, or, or anybody in a, in a consistent manner if we talk about the situation in East and West Africa and Central mm-hmm. Africa because there's a particular type of snake um, yeah. which uh, which occurs there but not here. Yeah. And that particular snake is grouped in this uh, okay. uh, 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 other uh, antivenom that we're talking about today, the uh, South Afrique uh, antivenom. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that's it's perhaps uh, not all snakes are equal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tested, and neither are, and neither are the, the antivenoms. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, basically an overview of the situation. Okay. Now, Mr. Boruri Lekhranji, thank you for your time. Head of Communications at Médecins Sans Frontières in South Africa. Thank you once more for the informative uh, replies. Thanks. Thanks for your interest. And if, uh, if your listeners are interested in they finding are. out more, be sure to, to visit our website. It's www.msf.org.za. Fine. Uh, and those interested in supporting our work uh, in relation to currently what is described as a refugee and migrant crisis in, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea and Europe, uh, all they have to do is just send us an SMS with join that's J O I N four one sorry four two one one zero. That provides us with an immediate donation that can help uh, uh, our teams working on three rescue and search uh, vessels in the uh, Mediterranean. Okay, that SMS, uh, 42110. That's correct. So you just join. Join to 42110. That's it. Thank you, Bori. Good night. Thanks so much. Uh, Good night to your listeners. Thank you. Now, the Worldwide Fund South Africa and Mondi, one of the country's packaging and paper giants companies, are working in partnership to improve the lives of the people in the forest conservation areas. To hear more about this partnership and the activities, Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa caught up with Dr. David Lindley, manager of WWF South Africa, and Robert Corcoran, Mondi's environmental manager, Forests, at the 14th World Forestry Congress underway in South African port city of Durban. And this report from Wandile. The conservation of forest areas plays an important role on improving the livelihoods of communities living in and around the forest areas. Mondi one of South Africa's largest paper companies and the worldwide fund South Africa are working jointly in the conservation of forest areas and empowering the local communities. Dr. David Lindley, manager for the worldwide fund South Africa and Mondley Wetland Program, explains. Well, most of our forest conservation is angled towards the sustainable management of plantation forests in South Africa because we have a very small amount of indigenous natural forest, whereas in other parts of Africa they have large tracts of natural indigenous forest. So in South Africa, WWF worked very closely with Mondi, a large packaging and paper company, to strengthen the management of plantation forestry practices to try and reduce their impact on the natural environment and the natural ecosystems like wetlands and rivers that provide a lot of what we call ecosystem services to the downstream towns and villages and ensuring that they have clean water. So it's a very close partnership between a forestry company and the forestry industry and WWF to strengthen the management of the plantation forests, um, reducing any possible negative impacts on the natural environment. 
Talking to Channel Africa, Brent Cochrane, environmental manager Forest at Mondi, says they have numerous community programs and small grower programs that works to benefit local communities in the areas the company works in partnership with the Worldwide Fund South Africa. So, yeah, we have numerous community programs and small grower programs that we work with, sometimes in the areas where we work with WWF and others in the rest of our plantations. The one angle we look at is the first aspect, which is very important in South Africa, is around land restitution, which is an important component of land reform in the country. And we adopt a very proactive approach where we set up a 20-year model and a contract agreement with the new community landowners to unpack what forestry means to them to help manage that forestry and then eventually that they are capacitated to take a forestry over at some stage in the future from a small grower perspective. We also have a program called Mondi Zamele, which is an enterprise development program. Yeah, so we have a Mondi Zamele's enterprise development program which looks at business enterprise in the communities that are adjacent to our plantations. So some of it is around forestry enterprises, and some of it is around sort of various other enterprises that can occur in the communities. So the opportunities with Moni Zamele is really to capacitate people in small businesses, and we, we adopt a three-step approach here. One is we look at the business plan, another one is we actually mentor them in the business as it gets going, and then we also provide the funding. So it's a big so mentorship. The challenges in dealing with land restitution is the capacitation of the respective communities to take over the management of the forest areas. The challenges are always about are the communities capacitated enough to take over those forestry enterprises or do they need that transition time? In this case, we have this 20-year model which allows sufficient time for us to build a solid relationship. They are the owners of the land. They're getting financial benefits from their partnership and ultimately they'll become the managers of that forestry or continue to use Mondi as a service provider to provide that forestry management expertise. So in terms of the challenges, it's really just being able to work out the partnership in practice from day to day. And what does that agreement mean in terms of expectations from both parties? And working through, keeping that relationship going, building the trust and looking to get those outcomes that we all want. Dr. David Lindley, manager for the Worldwide Fund South Africa, Mondi Wetland Program, says the adaptation to climate change in communities where the forest conservation program is taking place is one of the important things that has to be achieved. I think that's probably one of the most important things that we have to achieve, certainly in the next 10 years, as climate change starts to kick in, because that will mean that people will... the agricultural crops will ripen at different times, it will be a lot more tougher for farmers to grow crops and plantations in these changing climatic times. So the most important thing that we can do is try and strengthen the ability of the communities to adapt to this change. So we as humans cannot stop the climate from changing, but we can adapt. So it's strengthening what we call the social capital, the ability of communities to work together to overcome the different problems and challenges that might arise from global warming. So, for example, we'll have more droughts, we'll have more floods. How can we support small growers to adapt to these challenges over the next 10 years? So we are working very closely in some areas with small growers, not just plantation growers, but also sugar growers, and trying to help them work together in collectives, in cooperatives, 
so they can actually manage their farming unit as one larger cooperative rather than small individual farmers. So they are a lot more able to buffer themselves against the different challenges that arise in the future from global warming. Talking about forest stewardship in South Africa, Robert Cochran says his company is 100% certified for its forestry plantations as well as working with their small grower suppliers. As Mondi, we are 100% FSC certified for our forestry plantations. And then we also work in with our small grower suppliers, which make up about 20% of our supply chain. Well, now time for our economic report. Here is Anne Musa. A very good evening to you. Ratings agency Fitch says the risk of a downgrade to South Africa's sovereign rating is increasing. In June, Fitch confirmed its triple B rating for South Africa with a negative outlook. Fitch director Carmen Alkic says the news flow about the country has largely been negative since it was placed on a negative outlook. Ratings agency Moody's earlier said it did not anticipate its rating for South Africa to change. A study by the South African Institute for Race Relations says pressure on consumers may drive the country into recession. The research shows that consumers are undergoing economic pressure that may dampen the country's economic outlook. The Institute's Gerbrand van Heerden says consumer spending plays a role in economic growth. When consumer confidence is high, consumption expenditure increases, which in turn boosts economic growth. Between 2004 and 2007, levels of consumer confidence and consumer spending peaked, and and the economy grew at an average rate of 5%. In recent years, however, we've seen consumer confidence and consumer spending plummet, and uh, this will dampen economic growth, uh, which is already at a very low rate. The Ugandan shilling firm as importers held back in expectation that the currency will strengthen against the dollar because of tight money market liquidity. Traders have said the scarcity of shillings is also forcing some banks to trim their hard currency positions. So far this week, the central bank has stayed out of the money market. Rwanda Air has signed a deal to buy two planes from Airbus as part of its expansion plans. Rwanda Air officials say the airline expects to break even by 2018 and plans to carve out in niche by connecting underserved destinations across Africa. In June, the carrier signed a deal with Eastern and Southern African Trade and Development Bank for a 160 million US dollar loan as part of the financing to buy the two Airbus aircraft. Looking at the financial indicators, currencies at close uh, of market, the U.S. dollar was trading at 13.79 to the South African rand, at 0.65 to the British pound, and at 0.89 to the euro. In Nigeria, one U.S. dollar was trading at 199 naira, in Kenya at 105 shilling 35, and in Botswana at 10 pola 38. Gold trading at 1,222 dollars. Platinum is at 1,000. And three dollars an ounce, and the spot price of Brent crude oil at forty-eight dollars twenty-nine cents a barrel, and that the economic update.
Now time for our sports report. Yes, Fikile Lenguati with the latest. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with games, indigenous games. The 2015 National Indigenous Games have been launched in Pulugwani in South Africa's Limpopo province and are set to take place between the 20th and the 24th of this month. Speaking during the launch at Merupa Casino Minister of Sports and Recreation, Figine Balula has emphasized the importance of participating in these games. Basic education department is always welcome, but they really drag their feet, those people, ne? I mean, the, the reason why we don't have a school sport in South Africa is because of them. Otherwise, we needed to have school sport in the schools long time ago. Their problems are many, man. Distribution of books, uh, making it a point that uh, kids, uh, you know, get adaptation to the new syllabus and all of that. So they are too slow for my liking. So I, 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 I'm very fast, my sister, so fast and furious. I believe in something that must happen, and then it must happen, everybody must see it. When we talk about school sport, it must happen. Why should it stop? You know, it must happen, everybody must see kids playing. Hey, man, we are spending 20 years talking one and the same thing, school sport, no transformation, basic education, no Sports cannot get involved in school. We sign memorandums after memorandums. Hey, ah, these memorandums are many. They are supposed to be here. It's open to them. Traditional affairs is here. They came once. We showed them the indigenous games in Tuani. And then the next year they said they are involved. We are happy. That's how it's supposed to be. Mbalula revealed that he will not be attending Bafana Bafana's game as he will be at the Springboks 2015 Rugby World Cup farewell event. He's confident that they will do well in England. The box performance has also came under fire lately, accompanied by transformation issues. But Mbalula says they know how to fight and is backing them all the way. Leave issues of transformation. Those boys can fight. That's why I'm going to England. Not half-hearted. Convinced, I spring box, Libala went. Balo Vashiman Valeo, die Burgis, You must never take chances with them. You can accompany them to war. If they do bad this World Cup, uh, it will just be part of the fate, you know. But we've got two World Cups against the best. So I've got no doubt. I can only wish them well and they must go and all of us, we support them. They must go and represent. I'm confident. And I think our boys must rise and rise to the occasion. The moment and time has arrived. With Deben hosting the 2022 Commonwealth Games, Balula says they will explore possibilities of having some of the indigenous games be part of the Commonwealth Games. And South African side, Orlando Pirates have been boosted with the return of Tabo Matlaba fitness. Matlaba injured his hamstring in the Kev Confederations Cup game against CS Faxon in July. Pirates are preparing for the game against Zamalek in their final group fixture on Sunday, depending on his progress at training and his fitness level. Matlaba could be included in the 18-man match day squad for the trip to Cairo for the weekend's game. Head coach Eric Tinkler is not downplaying the importance of this match. You know, at a club like Orlando Pirates, you expected to win every game. 
my mentality has always been that. You know, no matter no matter who we play, whether it's an official game, uh, not an official game, I always go with the mentality that that we need to go out there and win. This game for me is still very very important because I think psychologically it will be very good for us to go there and get the result against them because if we look at the two teams that we're going to probably we we likely to face in the semis with they they North African teams again play a very similar brand of football and uh, it would be very very good for us to go there get a result against Zamalek because I think it will uh, just increase that fear factor that the other teams will have upon us which I think uh, already I'll, I think a lot of those teams don't really want to find us in in the semis and that's your sport news this hour This is Africa Digest. Well, our top stories here on Africa Digest is how Kenyans angry as the president for signing an agreement with Uganda, which will allow Kampala to export sugar to Nairobi. Mining stakeholders in South Africa hold talks over loach job shedding in the sector. And South Africa's Minister of Sport launches the Indigenous Games. That wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Jazz Arad, producer Lebo Monomacholo, tech producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. Any comments, email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or SMS plus 27823325905. Take us through top of the hour. Here's Jonathan Butler and I pay respect on Channel Africa.